0: John's message this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or in the pew Bible in front of you and follow along as I read the first 12 verses of Galatians, chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and he who is troubling you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But if I, brethren, still preach circumcision... Why am I still persecuted? In that case, the stumbling block of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would mutilate themselves.
1: Well, Paul is very angry. Those are
0: strong, strong words. I
1: wish those who unsettle you would mutilate themselves. A strong language. Who are these people? What have they done? to bring down this incredibly harsh judgment upon their heads from the Apostle Paul. Let's find out. Verse 7 says that they are hindering believers in Galatia from obeying the truth. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Verse 8 says this persuasion isn't from God. This persuasion, he says, is not from him who called you. Evidently, there's a group who's trying to to take these believers and draw them back to a position of bondage or of slavery from which they had been delivered. And specifically, they meant to put the burden of the ceremonial mosaic law upon them so that they could use it to earn a right standing with God or perfect themselves in their standing with God. Verse 1, for freedom Christ to set us free. Stand fast, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For I, Paul, say that if you receive circumcision, so there's the issue, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Look at chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, and you'll see him go right to the heart of the matter on this issue of of circumcision with these uh, false teachers, whoever they were. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would compel you to be circumcised, and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who receive circumcision do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh, which, of course, the law never taught that they should do. That kind of boasting is against the law. So even these law keepers are disobeying the law. So here's a group of people in the churches of Galatia who are pushing the Jewish requirement of of circumcision onto Gentile Christian converts. And Paul's problem here is not that circumcision is bad. You remember he circumcised Timothy for a missionary strategy in Acts 16. What's at issue here is motives. What's lying behind this push to get these Gentile Christians to go another step beyond faith and keep the ceremonial law and get themselves circumcised, there's a motive here that's diametrically opposed to the meaning of the cross and of the freedom of grace. The cross means the end of all boasting, the end of all self-reliance, the end of all independence. That's what it said in chapter 6. That They were using this circumcision to, to, to boast and to glory in the flesh. And therefore, Paul follows that in chapter 6 by saying, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross. What's at issue here is the meaning of the cross and the meaning of, of grace. They were performing circumcision and urging it upon the people in such a way that it called attention to religious accomplishment and to the work of the flesh and not to the grace of God which is free. Therefore, it made Paul angry. You read his letters in vain to find anything approaching the anger of this letter. If you ask why, it's because religious nullification of grace was the worst thing he could think of. Religious... Nullification of grace was worse than adultery, worse than homosexuality, worse than fornication, worse than all the biggies that we talk about. He got more angry at religious people who nullified grace and the cross than he did at those poor, stupid, wicked Corinthians. Well, right in the middle of this amazing indictment of religious legalists comes a verse that is of extraordinary comfort to people like you and me who are sinners, even saved sinners. It's verse 5. It'll be the focus of our meditation For through the Spirit by faith we wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, this verse is intended by Paul to be an alternative way of life to what he's criticizing in the first four verses. There are four things here. Look at them. Number one, righteousness is not a present possession in full. It is a hope. Second, Therefore, life now is a waiting for righteousness. Waiting, waiting. Third, this waiting is a waiting through the Spirit. And fourth, this waiting is a waiting by faith. There's a grand summary of the Christian life and what it means to walk with God as a Christian instead of a legalist. Well, the whole thing is contrasted with another way of life, and I think we'll see it more clearly if we take verses 1 to 4 and just try to get a clear picture of what he's so against here in these verses. Let's do that. Verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, there are two ways to go after God. If you want to be with God, if you want a standing with God, acceptance with God, pleasing God, you can go about it two ways. You can become a slave and work for God. Or you can become a child and live enjoyably in his house. A slave tries his best to perform in such a way that he might win a standing with the master. A child rests in the incomparably wonderful truth that his name is in the will. That his father wrote before he had a chance to earn anything from the father. Slaves are always uncertain. They're never quite sure that they've done enough to please the master. And children... Don't even think of it that way. They're already in the house. The banquet table is available. The money is there for their schooling. The inheritance is there, and their name is in the will. They are free. Look at this great distinction in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 and 7 of Galatians 4. It says in verse four, but when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, verse seven. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. So so what's he trying to do in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, don't go back. He's saying, don't revert to the slave mentality. Don't revert to the slave-master relationship. Live in the freedom of sonship, where your father has written your name in the will and the inheritance is guaranteed for the child. Don't relate to God as slave master. Relate to God as child father. Stand fast in the freedom to which you've been called. Then verse 2 says it in a little different way. It says, if you want to be the workman in this affair of salvation, Christ won't be the workman. It goes like this. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision. Now, let me put a parenthesis in here. You you know from the context now that that doesn't mean just any old circumcision. There's nothing wrong with circumcision in and of itself. It's circumcision on slave terms. Circumcision as a work whereby we will improve our standing with God by meriting more favor. Now, read it in that light. I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Well, Christ is an advantage to us. Oh, is He an advantage and a profit and a benefit. He paid all the debts we had at Calvary to God. He freed us from the dungeon of the debtor's prison. He frees us to walk as children to God. And He promises to use His omnipotence To do us good rather than evil all our days. Oh, he is an advantage to believers unless we want to do the work. And if we choose to do the work, he will back off and we will be cut off from Christ. Look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. You see what's at stake in this verse? The freedom and the glory of free and sovereign grace. Paul says, if you won't live out of grace, live from grace, you're cut off from grace. Grace is flowing freely to people who will live in it who will rest in it, who will relax in it, who won't try to commend themselves to God in any other way but through grace. If you intend to take by the power of your flesh any moral act, perform it on behalf of the Master to improve the standing of your servanthood, you are cut off from Christ and a foreigner to grace. But if you follow The advice of Paul, then you're at home in the father's house. There's a great example of what we're talking about here in a parable. The parable of the prodigal son. We haven't perhaps spent enough time on the elder brother. We know the younger brother. We talk about him a lot. He was the one who got his inheritance, ran off, wasted it, became a real dissolute, immoral fellow, and then was broken, says he came to himself, saw himself in the true light, knew he was a worm and not worth anything. And he went back to his father and just cast himself on the mercy of the father and the father held out his arms. And in free and overflowing grace, he puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his back and oh, it was a big celebration. He was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. Where's the older brother? He's on the porch with the servants. And the father could have left it that way and he'd have been just to do it. If he wants to stay out there, let him stay. But he didn't. Jesus says the father went out and entreated his son. He humbles himself. God humbles himself to come to legalists and entreat them. Want to come in off the porch of legalism and join the party of grace? And you know what he says to his father? Words that put him square in the camp of Galatian legalists. Listen to them. He says to his father, Lo, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your commandment. That's exactly what Paul said before he got converted. The mindset of a slave in the Father's house, the mindset of a slave cannot deal with grace. He sees grace going on in the house, free and sovereign and unfettered grace, and it makes him angry because he has the mindset of a slave and he will not go in. He stays on the porch where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unless he can humble himself and live Out of grace. Stop living out of servitude. Stop trying to impress his father that he kept so many commandments. Come on, I've done like all your good servants have done. Jesus' point is, don't relate to God like that. Don't even think of relating to God like that. You'll be cut off from Christ. Where's Christ? He's in the party with sinners and tax collectors. That's how this whole parable got started, you know. In in Luke 15 1, he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, and, and the Pharisees, who are the elder brother, they got mad at him. And he had to explain what he was doing, and he told the parable and he said, This is grace. Don't you understand grace? No, they didn't. Because they had the mindset of a slave. They related to God as a slave. And Paul is pleading with these Galatian Christians, don't go back to that. Whatever you do, you'll be cut off from Christ if you turn back to slavery and stop resting in him as a father and a child. Well, there's a great invitation for you here today. I don't know where you are on this, but I'll bet there's some slaves here. There may be some younger brothers too, but maybe there are slaves Whose whole orientation to God is fearful efforts to please. Trembling efforts to stay in His favor because He's holy and He's just and He crushes unbelief and wickedness. And the only conception you've had for how to get near Him is to work for Him. To put points on the chart. Well, there's an invitation here. The Father comes out on the porch and entreats you this morning. Come on in. Change your mentality. Forsake the mindset of a slave. I will freely give you the mindset of a child and write your name in the wheel. Come in. You are welcome. It's free. Anyone, just celebrate with me. Grace. Rest in grace. I accept anybody who will quit puffing himself up and thinking that he can deserve me? Just be like the younger brother and give it up. Come home. The great invitation, and I urge you, any of you who are slaves to God, to forsake it this morning and become a child by resting in grace. Well, maybe we've done it. You know, you need not move an inch to be born again. You need not move an inch out of your seat to be saved. It is an act of the heart through the Holy Spirit and can happen this very minute by the grace of God. And I want to finish this message by talking to those for whom it's happened some 60 years ago, maybe some in the last two minutes. Verse 5 is a description of how you are to live now. All right, I'm a child. I don't want to be a slave anymore. I don't want to relate to God like that. I want to relate like I'm supposed to. Well, verse 5 is just a magnificent description of how to live your new life with the Father. Let's read it together. Chapter 5, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. I love this verse. It is a comfort of my soul again and again. And you'll see why before we're done. First point. Righteousness is a hope, not a full present reality. Righteousness is a hope, not a full present reality for the children of God. Evidently, the legalists were preaching some kind of perfectionism. They were saying, I think, all right, you can start with faith, you Gentile believers, but look, the Bible teaches circumcision, and therefore, here's the careful shift that takes place, therefore, if you want to make real progress in becoming complete with God and earn further merit beyond what you've attained through faith, get circumcised. Now go back to chapter 3 with me. Verse three, and you'll see Paul asking about this, pleading with them not to fall into this trap. Chapter three, verse three, he says to these people, Are you so foolish? Having begun with the spirit, are you now ending or literally being completed by the flesh? Now, look at that little word being completed. Some of your translations don't get it right here, but let me point something out. These two words here, ending, or beginning and ending, or beginning and being completed, those are the exact pair that occurs in the familiar verse, Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you, there's the Spirit, will most certainly complete it, there's the other verb, on the day of Christ. So Paul is saying here, do you think that you can begin with the Spirit and then you tick up? You take over by your flesh and complete what God began by the Spirit? No way. If God began it by the Spirit, he'll complete it by the Spirit. So what these legalists were teaching is, okay, you made a good beginning. Fine. You began with the Holy Spirit and faith. Now, look, God expects more of you. You're going to start working now. You're saved. Okay, you're saved. But you can earn points. You can super You can get beyond what you have by working and gaining merit through getting circumcised. You can complete the work he began. Paul hates it. He hates it. It is a nullification of grace. It is a canceling out of the cross. And so in verse 5 of chapter 5, he says, there will be no perfect righteousness in this life. There will be no perfection. Anybody that teaches you you can be perfect is going to teach you to lie or despair. So let's settle it. Perfectionism is wrong. We will not attain it in this life. We wait for it. And here's the second point in the text. All of life, therefore, in Christ is a life of waiting, waiting, waiting. Through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. Now that's an interesting verb. I didn't plan it this way, but the three sermons that I've given you on the content of hope, namely, His second coming, new bodies, and now the hope of righteousness. Every one of those texts has this verb in it. Hebrews 9.28, He will save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Romans 8.23, not only nature, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And now here it is again. Now, let me drive something home here. This is so important for your doctrine, for the fiber of your faith, for the endurance of your obedience. Romans 8.23, last week we saw, encouraged us to believe that even though we might suffer under imperfect bodies that are diseased and not whole, nevertheless, we wait for the redemption of our bodies. So there it is. Right now, imperfect bodies, we wait. Here we have the exact same thing applied to our moral condition in Galatians 5.5, 5, right? We wait for righteousness. Here we groan in our bodies. Here I groan in my lack of holiness. You groan like that? Anybody groan because you're not perfect yet? I hope so. We wait. We long. We groan. We want to be whole. We want to be perfect. And he says, not yet. When he comes or when you go, then the spirits of just men made perfect will gather around the throne. So mark it. The second point is our life is a life of waiting and hoping for the completion of our redemption. And the third thing that we see in this verse is that our waiting is a waiting through the Spirit or by the Spirit. Now that brings to mind again chapter 3, verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being completed by your own efforts, the efforts of the flesh? No way. It cannot be done. And so he stresses here the life of the child of God as he waits for the hope of righteousness, as he waits patiently for his perfection is awaiting in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the power of the flesh. And every one of us should admit this, if you want to exalt grace in your life. Admit that you would not be waiting eagerly for righteousness if the Holy Spirit had not worked it in you. Isn't it the work of the Holy Spirit that you are hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Blessed are you, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to be satisfied someday. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's the third point. Don't boast in your waiting. Don't take credit for your waiting. No matter what level of sanctification you attain, it's not much, I'll tell you. But what it is, it's all of God. It's all of God. I've been reading in Cunningham's history of doctrine and one of the great differences between Roman Catholic faith and Protestant faith is the Protestant conviction that there is no attainment of supererogation, that is, merit in this life, because all of our acts are tainted with impurity. You don't ever do an act that is not tainted in this life, we wait. For the hope of righteousness. Finally, very briefly, we wait not only by the Spirit, but also by faith. Isn't it beautiful what is compacted into this verse? Here is the divine element in our life by the Spirit, and here's the human element in our life. We believe, the Spirit works, and the effect is our faith. And that's the way we wait. There's a beautiful commentary on this verse in chapter 2, verse 20. Let's close by looking at it. Galatians 2, verse 20. I hope every one of you know this verse by heart. And if you don't, I hope you take five minutes to learn it today. It'll feed your soul in a thousand ways for the rest of your life. Galatians two twenty is a commentary on 5, 5, or you might say the reverse, but I think it's fuller. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Stop. That's a commentary on by the Spirit we wait. The Spirit of Christ is in me. It's not me who's living this life. Christ is in me. The Spirit of Christ. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life that I now live in the flesh, there's that imperfect setting. A life in the flesh with all of its burdens and all of its imperfections and all of its waiting. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. Here it is. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's a life of faith. It's not just beginning with faith. It's sanctification by faith as well as justification by faith. So practically, how do you do it? Let me describe a day. You get up in the morning. By the grace of God, you cast your memory and your mind back a couple of thousand years and you behold Christ dying for you while you were still in trespasses and sins and loving you. He loved me and gave himself for me. And you let that take its full effect. And with that verification of his covenant love, you now turn back and cast your eyes over your day's work. And you look at all the uncertainties. And you let, you let your eyes go maybe a few years into the future. Or maybe you're old and you wonder, will I be alive in two years? Will I see all these great plans that are coming? And if you're young, will I have this job? Will, will I ever get married will I, with this disease I have, take its full toll, all the uncertainties of a day or a year, and you take that verification of the love of Christ, and you use it to undergird his promises, which go like this: I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have all authority in heaven and earth. I will work all things together for your good. No good thing will I withhold from those who walk uprightly. And there comes over your life a great peace. And out of it goes the anxiety of self-serving and self-protecting pride and fear and unlove. And in its place there comes this passion to double the joy that you have in grace by extending it to other people. A passion to flourish in grace, to live by grace, to extend grace, to be a fountain of grace. To be a child in the Father's house instead of a slave. Stand fast in freedom, all His saints. Your God is love and never faints. Though you must wait and oft confess, He gives at last for righteousness. Let's stand and pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we praise you together as a congregation here at the close of this service of communion, exalting your grace and loving your free and sovereign mercy to us sinners. Whether we be elder brothers or younger brothers this morning, oh God, break, I pray, the pride of dissolution, and the pride of religious legalism. Bring us to our knees before You and fill us with the hope of righteousness. And in all humility, Father, may we take our place in Your house as children. Perform it, O God. Let there be none who leave this room with the mentality of servitude, or the mindset of a slave. If they have not found their rest in You, give them no rest until they make their peace and come into the celebration of grace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray and all the people said, Amen.